Hello, and welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. I'm executive producer Patrick James Lynch, joined today by Global Hemophilia Report host and writer Lawrence Woolard. Say hello, Lawrence. Hi, Patrick. Very nicely done. And senior advisor, Dr. Donna Dima Kelly. Hello to you as well. Oh, hello to both of you, Patrick and Lawrence. This Pleasure to be here. This is quite a historic moment, actually, as it's the first time the three of us have actually been in the same room together live, not on a Zoom or other digital format. We're in Houston, Texas for the National Hemophilia Foundation's annual Bleeding Disorders Conference. It's taking place right now as we record this episode at the end of August. And this episode is a midpoint summary, as we are about halfway through season one, that is, having just released episode six on women with hemophilia. Today, we're here to spend a few minutes talking about some takeaways from working on that episode and that topic, as well as on the other five episodes that have been released thus far. Before we dive into the conversation, if this is your first episode of the Global Hemophilia Report, welcome. We're thrilled to have you, and we urge you, new listener, to subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report wherever you get your podcasts. It's free, and new episodes will be delivered directly to your podcast player, and previously published episodes will be readily available for you there as well. You can also visit globalhemophiliareport.com for links or to stream episodes from the individual episode web pages. Lastly, this show would not be possible without the production talents of the team at Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, led by our senior podcast producer, Keith Corneluk nor without the support we receive from Global Hemophilia Report featured advertiser, Sanofi. Thank you to Sanofi for your support. All right, team, are we about ready to dive in? We are. Good, let's do it. We will be right back after this quick word from our featured advertiser. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at SanofiHemophilia.com. Turning more closely to the theme of this episode, gender bias has a profound negative impact on women's health and well-being. Think about the study of anatomy. For centuries, this was largely limited to the male, often European form. Even today, anatomy textbooks focus primarily on the male body to visualize neutral body parts, whereas the female anatomy is often only considered important in terms of the reproductive organs, with diagrams showing women in the childbirth position. This gender bias is also part of a powerful undercurrent in the context of care for women, girls, and those with the potential to menstruate who live with haemophilia and other inherited bleeding disorders. Historically, from a genetic viewpoint, given its X-linked inheritance, it has always been taught and commonly thought that haemophilia is a condition that only affects males. However, an increasing body of evidence contradicts this assumption. Welcome back. All right, episode six on women with hemophilia and the research priorities. This is our most recent, most comprehensive, robust, and yes, longest episode to date. And before we go any further back in the season, I want to start right here. I'm curious to hear each of you reflect on what you learned or what most struck you about the topic from working on this episode. Dr. D. McKelly, why don't you kick us off? Okay, happy to do that, Patrick. Episode six. What a real tour de force discussion on the topic of women's health and women with hemophilia. And one of the first things that struck me that I really have to say right off the top is that 
some of the best advocates for women with hemophilia definitely come from their own male counterparts. And I don't know why, but that is not surprising. Hmm. So why it struck me so much, I am not sure. But you guys have done a tremendous job of advocating for your peers. Thank you. Now, the other thing I wanted to say is that one of the intentional aspects of the Global Hemophilia Report, exemplified by this episode, as well as several before and several more to come, has been the focus on populations with and complications of hemophilia that have not yet benefited from the explosion of innovative research in the field. Now, with respect to this episode specifically, I just want to say that I've had an interest in a research focus on women affected by mostly severe and moderate hemophilia, who actually make up only 1.5% of this population. But what struck me was that this episode really spotlighted the significant needs and the disparate attention that's been paid to access to care, diagnosis, and the treatment of women with milder symptoms who make up a sizable 20% of the mild hemophilia group. Mild hemophilia, of course, being a largely neglected group overall in terms of research and progress and care. The other thing I was really impressed by was the passion across the hemophilia community, however, to change that landscape for women. So I'm hopeful and confident of positive change ahead. And I think that change has the wind at its back with Mm. broader attention now being paid to health equity and disparity, a new research focus, relatively new research focus on how sex and gender influence biology of a disorder, and the attention that national and global organizations are now giving to the general health of and specific issues related to inherited bleeding disorders affecting women and girls and those with the potential to, to menstruate. Now, of course, change stimulated through this research is good, Mm. but it cannot come fast enough. Lawrence, what most struck you? To that point, I couldn't agree more. And I think Donna's provided a really lovely summary. And certainly we wouldn't be anywhere without Donna's evidence-based narrative. And particularly for myself as scriptwriter and host to set that foundation. And I think it was an absolute privilege, particularly for this episode, where we are looking at such a topical issue and and a population within our community that has really been forgotten for a long time. And I'll offer, Lawrence, that what Dr. D. McKelly's evidence-based narrative did for the episode created the space for you to do this really expansive contextual piece, providing history, world history, as well as medical history, to set the right context for this episode as well. That's really super important. And I think one aspect that really stands out is obviously looking at feminism and this, we have to place the care of women and girls in that broader historical context of feminism and the struggle for equality within a male imposed social order. So Mm -hmm. as you said, it was great to look back at history, 18th and 19th century social theory, and then that kind of segue into looking at the gender bias. And obviously that has a profound negative impact on women's health and well-being. And I think one quote we do pull through is from the British feminist author, journalist and activist, Caroline Criado Perez, from her book, Invisible Women, where she says, most of recorded human history is one big data gap. So I think, again, that kind of says a lot, really. Another 
issue that we raised in the episode was related to period poverty. Yeah. I think we really appreciated our contributors as well to add context to this at a clinical and on the ground right. level. But we know that it's prevalent in the general population, but obviously amplified in those that have heavy menstrual bleeding. So again, understanding the clinical and everyday realities of heavy menstrual bleeding, the impact on health status, social participation, financial independence amongst others. So it was great to have some patient input as well in the episode to really demonstrate the hardship that actually comes as a consequence of their experiences of living with haemophilia. Yes. I think just a couple of other topics was around language and inclusivity. So here, thinking about balancing the rights and interests of both biological females and trans and gender diverse people. Mm. So again, that's obviously very topical. And, and I know that there's a sessions here actually at the NHF conference on the LGBTQ plus community. A quote from Dr. Robert Sedonio Jr. who features in the episode, he said that there are differences in the way that genetic males and genetic females have haemophilia, but we also need to focus on studies in transgender persons as there's most likely nuances and differences. I think the diagnostic gap, again, really critical. I think Aspects around awareness, that kind of normalising bleeding within families, some of the cultural taboos that we pull out in the episode. And one thing that really I found of super interest was that combined haematology-gynaecology model of practice that I think, again, is showcased in the episode, really. And hopefully some of our kind of what more global listeners can really take a lot of motivation from within their own sort of country and context. Yes. And then lastly, we touch on, obviously, the Roe versus Wade decision in the US. So we heard about the potential ramifications and risk to these women who may not be able to maintain their pregnancy due to health-related factors and also showcase that kind of ongoing and future research, specifically the NHS State of the Science Summit and the mm -hmm. European Haemophilia Consortium's Women's Committee. So I think it was, all in all, a really powerful episode and one, as I said, it's been an absolute pri privilege to dive into. Yeah, and I think both your and Dr. D. McKelly's comments suggest there is just so much to the topic of women with haemophilia and I think the episode does a great job of at least covering a large percentage mm. of that big topic. So if you haven't listened already, highly recommend it. Most recent episode in the feed. Within haemophilia, we see far more research into the adult population. But I think we are seeing a massive recognition of mental health issues across the general population and I think post-COVID we are seeing an increase anyway in anxiety and depression. People with haemophilia are not exempt from the normal pressures and stresses of life. We know people with haemophilia across the world are reporting higher levels of anxiety and depression, lowered quality of life, impact on self-efficacy, so their belief in their own ability to manage their condition. All of these things will have an impact on day-to-day -day functioning. The pandemic has had a big impact on our focus. That's Dr. Michelle Whitcock again. We see mental health as being a big issue and it's regretful that something as impactful as a, a pandemic had to happen in order to change our perspective on these issues. But this is uh, my personal opinion, but I feel that people have felt that there's just not an issue. Kids don't have problems. 
Adolescents don't. That's just a normal part of growing up. They'll grow out of it. They don't look at it as a serious issue, something that needs to be addressed, to be evaluated, and to be treated. And of course, we all understand the stigma associated with mental health. And hopefully we are growing as a society so that we can move beyond that stigma and start looking at the underlying causes of this. All right, episode five, Lawrence, Mm -hmm. this was your first as writer and host, the topic mental health and hemophilia in adolescence and young adulthood. Now, Lawrence, you've done a lot of work in the hemophilia education space, but Global Hemophilia Report is, as best I know, your first foray into <laughs> hemophilia education via ensemble podcasting, which you have so graciously learned with <laughs> humility and tenacity. What was it like working, though, on on this episode and this topic, especially as your first? Yeah, I appreciate that, Patrick. I think, first and foremost, it was really fun and nostalgic, actually, because hmm. I harped back to my emo days, the sort of emo hardcore days and the kind of social, emotional and developmental needs of that coming of age period. I I gave a shout out to what my favourite band at the time, and obviously still is, Linkin Park. Yeah, and just those kind of thoughts and memories of my mum allowing me to have a mohawk, which which I think she doesn't regret, (laughs) neither do I. Yeah, can you imagine? Everybody won. Yeah. But actually, on a serious note, I think there was a level of responsibility to do our young people justice and speak into that idea that, I think that journey from adolescence to adulthood that obviously, you know, Patrick, we've both obviously experienced, Mm -hmm. it is really complex and challenging with many practical, as I said, emotional and psychosocial barriers to overcome. And I think for 10 to 24 year olds, they're not only experiencing the same life stresses as their non-affected peers, but obviously have that added responsibility of coming to terms with their potential quote-unquote restrictions right. and increased self-management of their conditions. So mm. I think as with the episode, and again, informed through Donna's evidence-based narrative, I think it was really important to, to highlight some of that complexity. And then related to mental health, we refer to how it's been decades in the making, or as per... The Washington Post published on that kind of broader mental health crisis in the US. Mm. But obviously we know that's The the crisis has been decades in the making. The crisis has been decades in the making and obviously exacerbated by the pandemic. And again, fundamental to the episode is really about advocating for psychosocial support. And so something that obviously is close to me at home in the UK, looking at the inefficient provision of psychological services. One case study we use is related to a peer review that was conducted in the UK between 2018 and 2020, Mm -hmm. where they looked at just overall haemophilia care and care for those living with inherited bleeding disorders. Two thirds of UK comprehensive care centres have no designated psychosocial support two-thirds two-thirds clearly more needs to be done and something that michelle whitcock at the national haemophilia foundation said is that we need to develop a research culture but i think there is a silver lining and again we pull that through in the episode which is the attitudes towards mental health in some cultures and broader society has been slowly shifting but we obviously need to continue to challenge assumptions and prejudices and normalize this kind of conversation absolutely Dr. D. McKelly, for you, 
once you began to sink your teeth into developing the narrative for this episode and surveying the available papers and research on the topic, what struck you most? Wow. As I delved into this, I didn't realize how important and neglected a topic it was, just to say from the top. I had been reading about the landscape with respect to mental health in the general population of adolescents and young adults that was deteriorating rapidly. Yes, it's Mm. been decades in the making, but it is deteriorating rapidly. Mm. And so part of the approach to the Global Hemophilia Report was to try to discuss issues that were age relevant so that we were really addressing the lifespan of hemophilia. So as I thought about adolescents and young adults, it just seemed incredibly important to really begin to try to explore what we know and what we didn't know Mm. about the mental health in our hemophilia population in that particular age group. Now, although I'm really impressed that there have been a group of researchers in the community that have been trying to address this, including the nature and the extent of the problem. But a lot of that research has, we're a little behind always. As the research is being done on a certain population, care is changing and the present population isn't being studied. And so we really don't have contemporaneous information Mm. about the mental health challenges in our current population of adolescents and young adults with hemophilia. Right. And I agree with Lawrence. Addressing this issue will require a fundamental change in how we deliver comprehensive care Mm. and who constitutes the comprehensive team. Yes. This is a complication that we never spoke about when I was delivering healthcare. We always had a social worker. We always dealt with psychosocial issues, but Mm -hmm. we never highlighted this in the way that it should have been Mm. in terms of saying there's wear and tear not only on the physical body, but on the mental and emotional health of our patients. And are we addressing this? So I agree that there needs to be a fundamental change in the way we deliver comprehensive care, addressing these issues, and through that remodeling of comprehensive care, ongoing research on this topic. But through care, we'll be able to keep our finger on the pulse of what is going on now rather than historically. I think that was an important message that was delivered through Lawrence's excellent narrative and the contributors who really highlighted these points throughout. And obviously, as the episode highlighted, this is not, this is a global issue. Yes. Let's shift gears and talk about episode four. I would like to ask Marilyn about her biomarkers because I think from a theoretical point of view, I would say biomarkers of synovium and inflammation and cartilage are probably much more interesting than the bone biomarkers. So did you consider those two? You may, probably you did. We could do that. Why I didn't think they were as interesting initially is we really don't see a lot of synovial inflammation. Yeah, but if you... In children. But we should look at the biomarkers and see if they're biochemically somewhat... uh, Exactly. Because if you don't see it, maybe, you know, it's the start. If you have subclinical bleeding, the, the, the synovium is at work. 
isn't it? We looked at these because we looked at them in individuals not on prophylaxis and found that they were grossly abnormal. And so we then felt obliged to look at the effect of factor A prophylaxis, which seemed to normalize them tremendously. And then we looked at uh, what was the effect of Hemlibra, and it seemed to be fairly equivalent. You know, maybe a little better, but certainly no worse than factor VIII prophylaxis. But you're right, the next, the next level would be going to synovial markers. So I've learned a lot from working on each one of these episodes, but episode four on bone and joint health, I found in particular, one thing that really struck me was the variety of research and investigations into biomarkers of joint bleeding and damage that may help us better understand what we commonly refer to as microbleeding or subclinical bleeding, or in the words of Dr. Annette von Drygalski, silent bleeding. Not as big a fan of the terms micro and sub, so she goes with silent bleeding. But universally, it's accepted there's an area of bleeding we could use more information about, and it seems as though the amount of work being done on biomarkers to understand that, as I said, struck me, and I'm excited to see where some of that research goes. Lawrence, as a fellow blood brother, what stood out to you from this episode? Yeah, definitely. And I obviously loved listening to this episode and, and its relevance personally to me living with severe joint damage. I think firstly, the gloves were off in this episode. I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed hearing Dr. Marilyn Manco-Johnson and Dr. Kathleen Fisher go toe to toe. I won't share any more on that. I really encourage listeners to, to dive in and hear it for themselves. Mm -hmm. But I think what, again, what struck me is really that stark reality mm that whilst joint outcomes are clearly better with early initiation of full and, you know, refer to the World Federation of Haemophilia's guidelines here, that should occur prior to the first joint bleed for the severe population. Still only a small proportion of people are reaching adolescence without any degeneration in the joints. Mm -hmm. And I think although subjective, even with relatively low individual annualized bleed rates or ABR, there's still resultant joint damage underscoring how every bleed matters. Yes. And that was a real key message that was coming through that episode. And then another, I think, a really powerful question is about what constitutes a good prophylactic outcome. Mm. I think there's still a lack of, or at least the way I perceive it, is there's still a lack of clinical consensus here. Now with longer acting and non-factor hemostatic agents, plus emerging rebalancing therapies and the ultimate quote-unquote prophylaxis of gene therapy, now with longer acting and non-factor hemostatic agents, plus emerging rebalancing therapies and the ultimate prophylaxis of gene therapy, that really needs to be defined. And then I think lastly sort of the discussion around conventional outcome measures versus moving beyond the ABR. Despite the push towards a more comprehensive assessment of outcomes beyond bleeding, I think, again, what really came through for me is how critical and fundamental joint imaging still is at preventing or slowing arthropathy. And again, I can speak to this personally in terms of how point-of-care ultrasound has become such an integral part, an integral tool as part of that comprehensive care delivery. For sure, yeah. Point of care ultrasound in particular was something that popped for me in this work and how vital a tool that really is and should be going forward. Dr. D. McKelly, I want to ask you to stray a little bit from your role as senior advisor and ask you something and to speak from a bit more of a personal point of view, as it were. 
I know how much the topic of prophylaxis, especially primary prophylaxis in children, means to you. I know this personally as a former patient of yours, and we'll talk about Profi in a few minutes. But ultimately, one of the goals of Profi, as Lawrence was alluding to, is to maintain as robust bone and joint health as possible. So my question to you is that given everything that you've learned in your career and given what you know about the current state of research, what investigations into monitoring and improving bone and joint health are you most hopeful or cautiously optimistic about helping us take the next steps forward in understanding and why? Yeah, that's a good question. But before I actually answer that, okay. if it's okay, <laughs> yes, I would I would <laughs> like to comment on what Lauren said because mm. I want to say that in strategizing these episodes mm. and juxtaposing bone and joint health and the prophylaxis episodes was really to highlight a very important point that Lawrence made. And that point is that for a long time, for too long a time, the successful outcome of prophylaxis was a short-term outcome, and that was stopping bleeding and getting to what we would call no to minimal significant bleeding, bleeding that required therapy. And I think that was an important goal. It was a real important goal, an initial goal, but we never moved beyond it. Hmm. And that's because oftentimes when we do outcomes research, it's much easier to look at short-term outcomes. Now, mm. Bone and joint health is a long-term outcome. That's yeah. a longer-term outcome. But I, one of the things that I believe is happening is that successful outcomes for prophylaxis are now shifting to bone and joint health. But how do you assess bone and joint health in real time? You can assess bleeding in real time, but how do you assess bone and joint health in real time. Mm. That's where some of the research that was highlighted in this episode will bring about the tools to monitor bone and joint health in real time. Mm. So that, and what are those tools? It's some of the blood markers, biomarkers that were discussed for bleeding and bone injury. Mm -hmm. If we can tell in real time that there is a lot of bone remodeling going on and signifying bone injury. And we can tell it through blood biomarkers that will tell the practitioner that we're not doing a good enough job right. at preserving bone and joint health. Similarly, imaging. Now you talked about microbleeding. We need to make sure that imaging is evolving to be able to identify small amounts of blood right. in the joint. Because yeah, maybe we've done a good job at stopping the terrible, incapacitating bleeding, but maybe we haven't stopped the bleeding that will allow bone and joint health to deteriorate. And finally, I think there's a lot to be gained about with from functional gait assessments, and we talked about that in the episode. Mm -hmm. So if we can, again, this is an evolution in care, if we can bring this research into the clinical arena and use them, in hopefully in a cost-effective way, to monitor bone and joint health in, a re in real time, then I think we're, I'm very optimistic that we're going to move toward more meaningful outcomes in hemophilia. Now, that said, I think this episode really highlighted the fact that perfect bone and joint health, which is our holy grail, is probably an unattainable outcome. Not largely because not it's... Reasonable. That's right. Yeah, but largely because it's not a reasonable outcome 
in individuals who don't have humans, <laughs> just people. <laughs> Injuries happen, right? Right, and and especially in those who don't have a predilection for joint and bone issues like bleeding disorders, autoimmune diseases. So we all stumble, we all fall, right. we all run, we all have wear and tear on our musculoskeletal system. So I think the goal will end up being the kind of mu- bone and joint health that. Uh, meets the expectation of general population. That's yes. an attainable goal. I yes. Think. And I think that's too where the scoring comes in as well, the joint health score, to yes. try to give some kind of metrics that we can understand what it is we're aiming for. Yes. But even that will probably evolve. How yeah. we measure but, that score will probably like Probably evolve. should. Probably needs and to. And probably should. Yes. Yeah. And I think I just had two points from following on from Donna. I think one, and this kind of merges into the episode three, as Donna says, on prophylaxis, which I know we're going to touch on. But I think one, I think it's been quite interesting to observe how, as some of the newer, longer acting products have become available, and even with some of the non-factor agents now, that it's really been driven or the conversation around them has really been around convenience rather than one of true optimal protection Mm. and i think we do need to challenge that as advocates you know and clinical advocates as well i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more we really need to for our peers to really truly understand actually what do you need to ensure that you're aligning your bleed protection with your lifestyle goals and aspirations and not sacrificing the here and now for the future and i think the second point i just wanted to make was the also uh, i think what came through in this in in episode four was the role of the physio Mm. and i know we've been this has been a part of the kind of advocacy sort of dialogue for a while now but if i even uh, refer to my brother who also lives with hemophilia he only had his appointment last week the only person he saw was the physio the physio drove the whole clinic basically Hmm. wow and actually i think that kind of suggests that i think for someone like obviously my brother in terms of controlling his treatment management fairly well yes that actually the really key component of his care is that is physio, the physical therapy piece. is the physical therapy piece. yeah that makes good sense. and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if again more of our peers actually experience the same that actually i, I don't want to d- diminish consultancy donna or particularly the role of the nurses but the physios are, are so important and again advocating for access to physio care yes. again if i think about the uk over half of centres, at the point that peer review was done, over half of centres had no specialist physio support. So two-thirds, no psychosocial support, half, half no, no physical physio. therapy You know, support. I meet guys that don't even know what physio care is. Wow. Really unacceptable. Well, and again, I think your point speaks to something we've actually mentioned already, and that is... How should comprehensive care evolve, even among consultants? There are those who specialize in physical medicine. And the importance of physical medicine, uh, whether it's through physio-physical therapy or whether it's through specialty care, that's not orthopedics, but that's truly Mm. physical medicine and rehabilitation. I think that's a specialty that probably needs to be brought into the comprehensive care model. Yes. Completely agree. And if I could change the topic for just one second and just mention one more point. I know you you asked me to talk from a personal standpoint, but if I could just put my researcher hat back on. I think that these 
tools that we mentioned in this episode, that we talked about and highlighted in this episode, will be really important for understanding the impact of bleeding disorders on the bone and joint health of women and girls. Mm, Because we know through NIH-sponsored research that bone and joint health is very much regulated by sex and gender biology, Mm. by hormonal biology. And all of that is coming to bear on women who experience bleeding disorders. Mm -hmm. It's all coming to bear on their bone and joint health. So hopefully these tools will begin to allow for the evolution of a strategy to specifically follow bone and joint health in women and girls. Mm. Is there the current resource and capacity to deliver optimal care to the many women and girls that actually require that level of support? Is that currently in place? There always needs to be a lot more funding. <laughs> uh, I, I would say, however, I would challenge the U.S. hemophilia caregiving community, though, to look at how resources are allocated. So, yes, of course, there always could be more funding. But there may be a very traditional way in which resources have been allocated to date. And re-understanding the priorities and moving with shifting priorities might allow for the reallocation of existing resources, Mm -hmm. which would be an immediate way to begin addressing these issues, followed on, of course, by seeking more funding. Great discussion and a clear thread that's coming up about the need to reevaluate what comprehensive care means. That seems like a very clear thread. We'll continue with the discussion on episode three and prophylaxis in just a moment, right after this quick break. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program, fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries, an important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit SanofiHemophilia.com. Prophylaxis. It's a big idea. It's a big word and a big commitment. And given the emphasis on prophylaxis for children, it often involves a caregiver as much as it does a young patient. For this reason, while working on this episode, I decided to call a real expert in prophylaxis and its benefits, my mom. Hi, mom. I just started the recording. So thanks for doing this. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions related to starting prophylaxis. Sure. Do you remember how you felt when I'd started prophylaxis? Oh, of course I do. I mean, you were just so happy. You weren't missing as much school. You were having very few bleeds outside of it. And I was 
so, so happy to see you pain-free and being able to participate in, in life like all your little friends were. Of course, I was quite happy about it, very happy. Do you ever remember feeling overwhelmed or, or burdened by any of this? No, I didn't. Okay, well, that's a simple question gets a simple answer. I'll take it. I mean, I just felt like it just changed your life. And for those few minutes, a couple of times a week, it just, to me, was it was worth it to see my child happy and, and healthy. So I never felt burdened or overwhelmed by it. No, never. Welcome back. Lawrence, I'm curious, again, as a fellow blood brother, what was your experience growing up in terms of your treatment? When was Profi introduced? And did you learn anything of personal interest from episode three on prophylaxis? Again, and... and uh, Really important topic. I'm turning 33 next month. Hey. Oh, um, I know. such a uh, youngster. Such, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you, Donna. So it, reflecting back, I was from an on-demand generation and principally because I have a moderate diagnosis of 2%. Mm. So 2% of normal factor eight levels, but a severe bleeding phenotype. Mm. I was obviously, because of that on-demand practice of the time... I was experiencing a lot of bleeds in childhood and early adolescence. And I think I'm a, a really good case in point of how significant bleeding in those early years can have such a detrimental impact yeah. on quality of life and limiting life choices. Yes. And I feel it even more when I'm at conferences like this <laughs> in huge venues. Walking everywhere. Walking, standing. <laughs> it's Maybe uh, not the ideal type of venue choice, one might say, for people with bleeding disorders. Maybe, maybe. The, maybe the venue organizers might be listening. And I think what's quite interesting for me to reflect on as well when listening to the episode is that the first evidence-based guidelines for prophylaxis in the UK weren't published until 2010. And I'm sure, and maybe I refer to Donna here, presume that was probably off the back of Mariko Johnson's joint outcome study. Absolutely. The only randomized, prospective randomized study in prophylaxis that's been done to date. Yes. So it's quite remarkable, really, isn't it? it? That even, and I'm sure it's the same for you, Patrick, during our childhood, really, it was probably a lot of just test and see really you, you know, know in full transparency i'm also sitting across from my pediatric hematologist <laughs> who i may say was on the progressive edge of prophylaxis yeah. so before it was a ubiquitously adopted practice that was something that was in my life so i am probably i benefit more from prophylaxis being introduced and i had an inhibitor and there were challenges but i benefited more than probably most who were born when I was born with the care that they received. But that maybe not, but that's my guess. I'm getting quizzical looks from across the table. I don't know how much I should push either. <laughs> what was the tear about? <laughs> not being good enough. Not being good enough. I think I'm doing wow. quite well. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I think you look great. Thank you, brother. I think I'm doing pretty great myself. I'll take it. I'll take it. Is there anything else that you wanted to comment on from the episode? Well, I think, again, that was a really important point, though, because I, I don't think we can look at Profi in isolation. Mm. I think I don't like the word burden, but I am going to use it in this context. Okay. It's obviously not just a burden for the individual having to receive 
or administer Profi for themselves, but obviously can impact on the whole family unit. And Absolutely. I think there is that difference in the sort of ideal and the reality of administering Profi yes. to a young child with other disruptive forces and hardships potentially influencing a caregiver and their family's decision and choices. And again, if I reflect back on my own family with two older siblings, and obviously one that I mentioned a bit earlier, but all three of us living with haemophilia, getting us out the door for school was hard enough, let alone trying to administer. And also the discussion around the clinical phenotype. And I think I refer to people like Peter Collins, actually, in Mm. Cardiff. And I know he's a big advocate around this, that prophylaxis should be offered to all people with haemophilia, irrespective of baseline level, if they experience joint or other clinically significant bleeds. Makes sense to me. Makes perfect mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. to me. So Dr. Dude McKelly, I, I want to ask you a question from th- this point of view. In spite of what Lawrence just pointed out about it wasn't until 2010 in the UK that the first evidence-based guidelines for prophylaxis were published, we are 12 years past that now. And in the US, it's been the standard of care for people with severe hemophilia anyway now for decades. So what are we still looking to learn? Isn't prophylaxis and its value by this point reasonably well understood? What's the point of continuing to do the research? Again, what is left to learn? So much. Okay. <laughs> so Asking much. Shall get the answer. <laughs> There's this philosophy that the more you learn, the more you need to know. And I think that's where we are in prophylaxis. In some ways, yes, we've had a long history of studies in prophylaxis and some outcomes, research, and prophylaxis, but in many ways, we're really still at the beginning, in my opinion, and especially so as the standard of care evolves, as a treatment strategy, therapeutics evolve. Again, the issue with research is really understand processes like prophylaxis in real time. Now, that said, I think the episode also highlights a lot of neglected areas, and Lawrence alluded to some of them, but if I could go through them a bit. Please, yeah. For instance, prophylaxis studies need to be done to answer how do we reach beyond the cessation of bleeding outcome to improve bone and joint health as the holy grail of prophylaxis. We don't have prophylaxis studies with those outcomes yet. How do we begin to adopt an individualized strategy, an individualized approach to prophylaxis based on a deeper understanding of physiology, risk factors, and lifestyle? Mm, Not everybody needs the same regimen. There's been guidelines and standards of care really speak to a very uniform way of doing things. Mm. But we may need to move past that Mm -hmm. into more personalized medicine, if you will, applied to prophylaxis. Now, in severe hemophilia, A, for instance, a subclinical bleeding occurring on current prophy is an important question. And what are the long-term consequences? We just talked about that. The other thing that I believe really needs to be studied is what's Mm. most important, dose, product, or timing? One piece of information that we'll eventually get from the Haven 7 study Mm. is will prophylaxis begun in infants be the key to improved musculoskeletal outcomes? Mm. Will gene therapy? Okay. Mm. Now, the other thing I'd like to mention with respect to the need for future research is the tendency has really been to extrapolate the knowledge gained in severe hemophilia A, to other populations. But what does prophylaxis, what does effective prophylaxis look like in hemophilia B? 
Mm. Is it the same as hemophilia A? We're going to talk about that in an upcoming episode. Good preview. What about in moderate and mild hemophilia, as you've alluded to, Lawrence? And what about, again, in women with hemophilia, where, again, Mm. sex and gender differences affect bone and joint physiology? So we've only scratched the surface in really understanding how to effectively deliver prophylaxis, in my opinion. When you break it down that way, it's quite clear. So I appreciate the thorough answer to that question, and I am thoroughly satisfied. From there, we'll transition to episode two. This was our episode on novel therapies and quite an education for me. It's been really exciting to see uh, continued innovation on the recombinant DNA platform. Dr. Stephen Pipe is a hematologist, researcher, and professor working out of the University of Michigan in the U.S. He also serves as the chair of the National Hemophilia Foundation's Medical and Scientific Advisory Council. When we developed recombinant proteins for factor eight and factor nine, many of us knew that that wasn't the end game, right? Yes, it's a great facsimile of the plasma-derived factor eight or factor nine, but we always knew that we could make modifications based on the recombinant DNA platform, and we could change the function or some of the characteristics of these molecules. Working on episode two gave me a much deeper understanding into the various ways that science continues to explore how the coagulation cascade may be manipulated by therapy to overcome deficiencies and disorders in these proteins. Dr. McKelly, with all the therapies currently being investigated, I actually want to ask you about factor. What role do you see Factor having in the next three to five years? And do you think it will always be with us? I do think so, Patrick. That is my opinion. And maybe I'd like to explain why. Please. Body systems are pretty complex and oftentimes still defy our understanding of them. And in light of that, the biological premise of replacing a single missing protein either through substitution therapy, that's IV factor therapy, or genetic reconstitution, like gene therapy, rather than working around it, is still the holy grail. Mm. In fact, because of the complexity of biology, we still even have challenges figuring out how to replace a missing clotting factor in the most physiological way. Mm. We don't know. In hemophilia, we think you need some constancy, like some baseline level, and the ability to augment those levels as the body needs it, okay, according to the need, physical stress, injury, whatever Mm. we're striving for. And I do believe that there's still, the holy grail is still replacing missing clotting factor now. And I also believe that the scientific community fundamentally agrees with Mm. that premise, Interesting. Given that there's promising research on into longer and better um, novel uh, factor eights and factor nines, like the BIV proteins. Mm-hmm. And for all the barriers that are left to surmount, even gene therapy is banking on the fact that really the optimal therapeutic is replacement of the capacity, that's in that case, the endogenous capacity to mm. make clotting factor. That's a good point. So I do believe that there is a future Mm. for factor replacement therapy and that we just need to learn how to optimize that. Right. Now, that said, 
the amazing work going on in rebalancing and disruptive technologies is really critical for those in whom replacement is not possible, inhibitors. And there, these novel therapies have really had and are demonstrating the capability to change lives of those living with hemophilia and this complication. So definitely, that's where the novel bypassing hemostatic rebalancing factors really have a role and will always have a role, in my opinion. Mm, that makes good sense to me. Lawrence, I want to ask you something similar in your opinion and based too on your experience with the community in the UK and beyond. What do you think the future of Factor looks like? To Donna's point, I think factor replacement will remain part of the treatment arsenal for years to come. Its long-established role in coagulation provides a safety net, even for people on non-factor rebalancing agents who may need to normalise their levels for breakthrough bleeds or surgery. Also, do we risk missing the benefits of peaks that factor replacement provides compared to, say, steady-state hemostasis from mimicking therapies? I think there's still huge value in flexible dosing and normalising levels at your own discretion based on sports participation and physical intensity. I think your question's a fair one. I'd be curious to hear yeah, Dr. Kelly your response. Well, yes, uh, I couldn't agree more. And that's what I was speaking about. When you have endogenous factor eight, you make a relatively functional baseline level. The body makes a very functional baseline level all the time. But in times of stress, that level goes up. And that level can go up to twice the baseline level. So normal physiology and biology tell us that factor replacement does need to be tailored to what is going on with the body at the time. Mm. And so the need to be responsive using exogenous therapy when the physiological capacity to do this isn't there makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. And I think there's no question the difference in quality of life that the more novel therapies are enabling. And I think it's quite exciting uh, seeing what's coming down the road with some of the super extended half-life agents, which if any of our listeners have seen some of the pictures of the molecules themselves, I mean, they're a piece of artwork in yeah. themselves. <laughs> For sure. So I think it is, and again, I know we'll touch on this, but it is really exciting. But I think fundamentally that, kind of freedom of dosing as Donna was referring to. And again, that role that replacement factor provides today is going to be the same for tomorrow and in the near future. Yeah. Another piece of it that that strikes me too is what don't we know about endogenous factor eight, factor nine, and the activities that are not on our radar, that are not yet on science's radar. And when we are replacing that which is missing, in theory anyway, baked in is the activity that we don't yet know about, right? Baked in is what it will just do on its own. When we're mimicking the activity we're aware of, that's good, but it doesn't carry with it the activities we didn't know to design that mimetic to do. So I'm a, that's a piece, too, that I'm a little curious about. I don't know, Dr. DeMichele, if, if you give that much thought. Oh, sure. I have two things to say about that. The first is that you're absolutely right in the sense that what's never been explored is what role coagulation factors have physiologically beyond coagulation. Mm. And I think that's what you're alluding to. The second point is that 
even the research into novel and disruptive technologies is important from the standpoint of not only the potential for therapeutics for those who need it most, but that basic science work, basic laboratory work is slowly piecing together information about the coagulation system that we never mm. had before. In trying to bypass what we understand about the normal coagulation system or in trying to replicate end clot formation, all of these researchers are learning more and more about how normal clotting works and what are the important features of normal clotting. And I think that in the end will serve this field mm incredibly well that makes a lot of sense yeah and just i think just to add here patrick i think you can speak to the next point more than i can related to the humanitarian aid with the wfh program that's been operational for more than 25 years and i was reading recently that within that time it's delivered more than 300 million international units of replacement factor to the developing world and i think the desperate plight of friends and peers in low-income countries isn't going away anytime soon no correct. and then particularly there was a recent editorial by glenn pearson colleagues at the wfh where they discussed the provision of factor to unstable areas of the world and support of refugees in surrounding countries with mm. particular reference to the war in ukraine of course yes and we heard from glenn on this episode who spoke very directly about making sure that as we continue into developments and novel therapeutics and continue this wonderful trajectory toward managing hemophilia at extraordinary levels in parts of the world, we can't leave out the 75% of it that traditionally we do when we think about developments and progress. And he said these in stark terms, which I very much appreciated, and is a part of the novel therapy discussion and the future of Factor that we should not lose sight of. The global population and the needs across the global population with all of the complexities that come with, including having to navigate things like war-torn regions and immense poverty. So huge topic into itself, but I'm glad we at least took a moment to underscore that component of this discussion. Absolutely important. Thanks for bringing that up. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals. When you have an inhibitor, you have increased risk of bleeding. And if you're bleeding more, you're not being able to go to school as much and focus. Um, you're more likely to stay in the house as opposed to be a normal active kid. So it has a lot of potential implications on their quality of life and their ability to treat a bleed effectively. And so I think that's, that's a big reason of kind of why we are studying why inhibitors develop and how to get rid of them so that kids don't have to deal with a potential medical and social impact that the inhibitors cause. 
missed school, missed activities, living in pain. The consequences of an inhibitor are clear, as is the need to learn more. How do we get rid of inhibitors? Better yet, how do we prevent them from developing in the first place? Let us conclude where we started with episode one on inhibitors. And Lawrence, something that I've been struck by, we have spoken to over 40 different scientists, researchers, clinicians, and patients across these first six episodes, which is phenomenal to be able to inform this podcast with the expertise of so many who have devoted their professional careers and beyond to this community. What I have noticed is that in particular, when it comes to inhibitors, the level of investment that I feel from especially those researchers who have clinical practice as well and see those patients in the clinic, hear the stories, speak with the parents, get the reports from their social worker who maybe sat with them for another 40 minutes to discuss whatever it may be, that there is a level of care and commitment emotionally that I find impressive. And we spoke earlier about the passion amongst the providers in the women's episode, and that's true and that was there. But I get goosebumps even now just describing when it comes to children and inhibitors, and of course, Dr. D. McKelly is no exception to this, those who are in boots on the ground with those patients really emphasize the need for more research and progress to, to do more for them. I'm curious from your perspective, Lawrence, have you found that level of investment from providers in the community and in particular when it comes to inhibitors? Look, I couldn't agree more. I think the impact of an inhibitor can be absolutely profound. Devastating. And like you say, the commitment of healthcare teams to do the best for these young children and their caregivers is evidence across the community. I think an inhibitor can engender greater fear and anxiety on both the child and caregiver. Mm -hmm. The intensity of care can cause offshoot effects for unaffected siblings who may feel resentment and being left out. Absolutely. Um, and also immune tolerance induction is no mean feat. And again, I'd be really interested to hear from Donna a bit more on that discussion around, particularly with the non-factor agents mm. about what is iti still the first course of treatment with an inhibitor actually are we going straight to something like emicizumab but and to that point the advent of non-factor rebalancing agents now leading to reduction in bleeds and improvements in overall quality of life and for some it's been an absolute game changer for mm. those living with an inhibitor absolutely and i think one individual i reflect on is a guy called josh from the uk and i remember in 2016 at the world federation of hemophilia congress in orlando mm. josh was wheelchair and room bound for mm. the majority of that trip but now since moving on to a non-factor agent gone on to university and absolutely living his best life and actually finally he's got aspirations yes. that he truly believes he can realize and actually there was a paper by simon fletcher called emmy and me okay and i just wanted to read actually a part of his summary for emicizumab to be truly effective there is a need to ensure the continued availability and accessibility of robust multidisciplinary support services without this it is unlikely that people living with hemophilia and an inhibitor 
will realise the life-changing potential offered either by emicizumab or any other novel treatment approach. Mm. And I think that reflects on some of our earlier conversations around the changes and dynamics of what multidisciplinary care looks like and actually that provision and access in the first place. Yes, great point. Yeah, very clear running theme throughout this discussion today. Dr. Dean McKelly, I'd love to hear your thoughts in general on the episode, but perhaps we'll start with the question that Lawrence had posed about immune tolerance induction as a strategy, and given where we are in the treatment paradigm now, how is that strategy being considered today as opposed to five, 10 years ago? I think that's a very important question. And maybe before I comment on that, I'd like to go back to something else that Lawrence underscored, Mm. and, and actually to the a point that you made in introducing the discussion of this episode, and that is the passion for this topic yes. among hemophilia physicians and caregivers who take care of children who develop inhibitors. Because I just want to say that one of the most difficult scenarios in taking care of a child with hemophilia is after painting a relatively good picture of what life can be like with current therapies, then having that child develop an inhibitor Mm. and how historically heartbreaking Mm. it's been to see that bright future slip away for a sizable percentage Mm. of severe Mm. hemophilia A patients and certainly for a smaller percentage of severe hemophilia B patients. Mm -hmm. But as you, as your story beautifully illustrates, although it's been historically heartbreaking, it's now been impressively encouraging to see how lives have been transformed in severe hemophilia A by emicizumab for children with inhibitors. And the primary benefit, not only in terms of getting their lives back, but one of the most challenging aspects of healthcare delivery while trying to eradicate an inhibitor is trying to maintain joint health. And I believe that emicizumab is giving children with inhibitors a fighting chance of maintaining relative joint health until we can get rid of the inhibitor. Now, which goes to your second point and the question that you asked me. I still fundamentally believe that even in the face of these new therapies and the promise of emicizumab for children who develop inhibitors, I really do continue to believe that children and adults with hemophilia will ultimately fare much better without inhibitors. Now that said, wow, I, having administered so much of it, I understand the burdens of mm. traditional immune tolerance therapy as it's been practiced. And I understand how hard it must be for a practitioner to take that step or for a patient or a parent with a child with hemophilia and an inhibitor to accept that step in the face of emicizumab. Where do we go from here? I think that the key is really a better understanding of the biological processes of both factor eight and nine immunogenicity. The fundamental question is still, with all things being equal, why do 30% of children with severe hemophilia develop antibodies and 10% of those with severe hemophilia B, while the majority don't. Mm -hmm. While whatever immunological processes that are going on 
in the vast majority of severe hemophilia, in the vast majority, those immunological processes result in tolerance. Why is that? Yeah. That has been a fundamental question that has never been fully explained. Now, scientists have been working on this question, more in factor eight than in factor nine, mind you. And based on that research, we have some clues, but the, we don't have that full picture yet mm -hmm. of understanding. Now, why is that full picture really important? And why must more work be done in this area? That's because until we understand these processes, we're never going to be in, able to intervene. But I'd like to paint like a scenario. And by the way, my hope is that a National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute funded study that's about to begin will begin to study the problem of factor eight immunogenicity in a way that it's never previously been studied. Mm, wow. So look out okay. for more information. But again, back to the question, why is it important? Because understanding the evolution of the immune response will allow us to be much more effective in either aborting a nascent immune response that is moving toward antibody development or inhibitor development, or ideally in preventing it altogether. And in being able to target the immune system in a way that's much more biological and physiological, we might be able to avoid treating inhibitors in the very onerous way that we have without having to administer large doses of clotting factor in the way that we have. And that brings up for me, we've talked today about the need from a management and clinical care point of view, the need to reassess what comprehensive care looks like. That's come up numerous times. But the other thing that we haven't highlighted but has come up and is coming up again now is the need for intersectional research into an area of interest. It is not enough for hematologists expert in hemophilia and bleeding disorders to be doing all of the research that will ultimately help people with hemophilia and bleeding disorders because there are immunogenicity considerations that immunology needs to be studying and working collaboratively with hemophilia care providers. We need people like Dr. Beth Warren in her gait assessment lab to be leveraging the best of sports science and sports medicine to understand gait function and then leverage all of those learnings for the betterment of our community, working with the physios and the hematologists. And that's something that throughout our work has really come to light for me. And you've emphasized it in our discussions, Dr. D. McKelly, the need for more intersectional research on areas of interest. To have research done in these silos is a disservice to the patients, to the researchers, to the funders. It is suboptimal. It is not creating the most good from the efforts. And that to me is just crystallized as we start to wrap up this episode with this discussion about inhibitors, which have continued to be such an issue and where there's need for more research, not necessarily from hematologists, but from immunologists and people understanding more and more about how the immune system works. And Patrick, that cross-pollination isn't just at a clinical level. 
the same goes for advocacy. We've got mm. so many themes that relate across other disease areas. Mm-hmm. And I think it's still a surprise to me when you do see advocacy organisations and efforts that are within their silos when actually there's elements around disability rights, yes. health equity, yes. all of these different topics of interest that actually we should be a lot more sort aligning, of aligning cross-sector sort mm-hmm. of collaboration and yes and i have been in i have been in meetings with representatives or their staffers where they have said basically as much could you come back to us with something that aligns with more of the chronic health disability yeah. communities maybe then we could align that with other interests here in this office there was points made about rural communities and broadband internet and if we could think more broadly and collectively about the need it might be easier to actually make a difference and when hearing that from the people whose support we're seeking, it feels to me all the more important to take that direction because they're trying to get to a yes. They're trying to find a way to support with a comment like that and trying to help guide our strategy in some ways. And to hear it from multiple people indicates, okay, there's something to this strategy. There is something that we're not executing upon. So that is a great point. It is not just in clinic. It is not just in research. It is also in advocacy. We need to be working intersectionality if we truly have an interest in reaching optimal outcomes. As we start now to bring this whole conversation to a close, I want to see, Dr. D. McKellie, do you have any final, feel free to comment on this last bit of the discussion. And then do you have any final words on inhibitors and the work that we've done thus far on the Global Hemophilia Report? All I can say is yes. But the other thing I just wanted to add is that I believe that that is what the community will now see in the research that I was mentioning going forward on understanding how inhibitors develop and the whole immunology around inhibitor development and tolerance, if you will. And so, yes, I couldn't agree more with everything that that you've both said. And I think it's important to bring it back to that human level, because I think, like you said, Donna, I can't imagine that decision-making between the clinical professionals and the family about making that decision of whether, as you said, you address the inhibitor at that point in time or you wait and, as you said, move on to a therapeutic like emicizumab. cannot imagine that. With, please excuse the pun, but it's a multifactorial decision. There is no black and white. And it's, I think, with your respect to the challenge of that conversation, I align with that. It is to have to go through those discussions and with the parents. Very and difficult. I can only... Can only no, they're very that. difficult because one of the issues that's probably not maybe even thoroughly addressed in those discussions is that there is a risk of waiting to address the inhibitor, to right. try to tolerize the inhibitor. And that is, we know very well that the longer you have an inhibitor, the more difficult it is to eradicate because... Mm of the immunological processes that are going on Mm -hmm. and the body's adaptation to the response to the factor eight, it just gets entrenched within the immune system. And so waiting will have its hazards as well. Mm. And I'm not sure how much of that of that immunology is actually explained even in the decision-making process. So again, I don't envy those discussions that are having to go on in the clinic because I do believe that they're very difficult. And I can imagine particularly around future treatment choices, right, Donna, where we're seeing particularly around gene therapy. Correct. And even access to longer acting and better Mm. acting factor therapies. There's a lot at stake when you persist in having an inhibitor. I believe there is a lot at stake. And I believe there is a difference between treating it now and treating it later. 
in terms of the outcomes. Now, what that said, once we understand the immunology better, maybe there won't be. And that's the hope for the future. Well said. So let me first say thank you to you both for everything you've done for the Global Hemophilia Report and for this conversation. It's such an honor to work with you both and with our team on making this incredible resource happen. So thank you. Lawrence, any final thoughts? I think just to obviously go from being a fan to, again, taking over the mantle from yourself of writing and hosting, you know, I would just obviously really encourage people listening in to this episode to obviously dive into to the previous episodes of the series to really encourage them to share the podcast with their friends, their family members, their colleagues, whatever network that they belong in. I think so much work, energy, time thought leadership for me it's absolutely remarkable to go from being on one side to the other and to see actually the operation and what it takes to deliver such high value content that I think all of us are really proud and that we actually believe in what the podcast and the value that it's offering. So I think, yeah, that that would be certainly my call to action is that we really hope that obviously those listening are enjoying the series and to feed back to the Believe team as well. Any comments, any suggestions, any future episodes. And let's, you know, obviously wait and see around the potential of a series two. So That's true. We had to finish this season one first, though. We still have some work ahead of us. But I align with everything that you just said. Thank you, Lawrence. Dr. D. McKelly, any final words from you? I just want to say what a welcome addition you've been, Lawrence. Thank you, Donna. (laughs) And for myself, I cannot say enough about What a privilege it's been to work with both of you. I thank you every day, Patrick. I thank you most days, Patrick. (laughs) You do. (laughs) Except when I'm working really hard against a deadline. (laughs) But thank you for bringing me in on this because researching each topic has brought me to a new understanding of hemophilia. Despite all my decades Mm. in the field, it really has brought me to this new understanding of hemophilia. It's opened my eyes to complications that have historically received way insufficient attention, including by me in the (laughs) years of my own practice. And so for that reason, this work has really been very humbling for me, but it's also been really inspiring as I get to witness all the talented people around the world who care enough to keep trying to make it better, thus allowing all of us to envision a more hopeful and helpful future for persons with hemophilia. So... Those are my thoughts. Absolutely. And I align with all of those as well. Of course, the work is far from done. And the next few episodes of the Global Hemophilia Report will continue to pursue the roads less traveled, concentrating on hemophilia B, which we alluded to earlier, and delving into the unaddressed and under-addressed issues of chronic pain across the lifespan. And to continue our lifespan theme, we will be discussing what we know and what we don't know yet about aging with hemophilia. Finally, we have been advocating for research in each episode, but many challenges to conducting feasible and impactful research remain, not the least of which is funding. So we will devote an entire episode to speaking with national and global thought leaders about what those challenges are and how we might overcome them. So lots more to come in season one of the Global Hemophilia Report. Again, thank you to Dr. D. McKelly and Lawrence Woolard. 
extraordinary members of this Global Hemophilia Report nucleus. And listeners, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes come out once a month, and each features an impressive list of advisors and contributors. And as mentioned earlier, we have spoken with over 40 advisors and contributors for these episodes thus far, and we are immensely grateful to them for their contributions. If you visit GlobalHemophiliaReport.com, you will find each episode's web page with the opportunity to stream episodes, read about those contributors, and find links to additional information related to the topics of those episodes. Again, that's GlobalHemophiliaReport.com or search for Global Hemophilia Report wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you to Global Hemophilia Report's featured advertiser, Sanofi, and visit ShareYourWhy.com today. On behalf of my colleagues, Lawrence Woolard and Dr. Donna D. McKelly and the team at Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, my name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time. Sanofi is breaking barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com.